Open up your Bible to John chapter 17. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you this morning, it'll be on page 903 of the Bibles there in your rows. And this morning we're going to look at gospel-driven work. Gospel-driven work. We've been in this series for four Sundays, actually five weeks because of Nemo wiped us out one week, and it's hard to believe we're kind of at the end of this journey, but I, I hope and pray that it's been a benefit to you as we've considered what our work lives can look like and even how God wants them to look like in light of who he is and what he's revealed to us uh, in the pages of his good and holy word. So this morning we'll be in John 17, and uh, to get us going, I want to give you a, a little a fact about a Hollywood actor named Ryan Gosling. Anyone know who Ryan Gosling is? All the ladies throw their hands up, giving a little woo-woos. Uh, so Ryan Gosling has uh, starred in uh, some, some movies recently, The Ides of March, uh, March, Crazy Stupid Love, and Drive. That's right. So, so I, sadly enough, we're supposed to be in the culture, not, you know, of the culture totally. And, and so I, I got to admit, I have not seen any of those three movies. I would like to probably see maybe one, at least one of those. Um, but, but, but I have seen another movie that he starred in. Maybe, maybe you read the book or, or saw the movie. It's called The Notebook, all right? So that's the one that I've actually seen. And, and at the end of the movie, I, I cried like a baby. So don't, don't judge me, fellas. By the way, who, who saw the movie, The Notebook? Raise your hand high, okay, because there's a follow-up question. And, and who, who cried at the end of it? Okay, there, I saw some guys' hands there, all right? So I can, I can own that, all right? It's a great picture of love. So, so we know who Ryan Gosling is. Well, what we may not know about Ryan Gosling is that after he starred in the movie The Notebook and his kind of star is on the rise, he actually took a, a different job. He started making sandwiches in an L.A. deli. And, and everyone, of course, is kind of asking the questions, ridiculing him. Hey, man, you're, you're like... You're loaded, you have a great job, you don't need to go to a deli shop and make sandwiches. And, and here is his response to that feedback. He says, I never had a real job. The problem with Hollywood is that nobody works. They have meals, they go to Pilates, but it's not enough. So they do drugs. If everybody had a pile of rocks in their backyard and spent every day moving them from one side of the yard to the other, it would be a much happier place. Some pretty sharp criticism to the Hollywood culture. Now, we could analyze his statement here from a variety of angles, but I want to propose that Mr. Gosling actually has some, some pretty good insight. I mean, we know he's the heartthrob and all, you know, one of these guys, and so he actually kind of gets to the heart of part of what we've talked about in our series here, and so I just want to kind of recap where we've been. So, so number one, the, the, the primary way he has this right is that God made us to work. That's what we looked like looked at in our first sermon in the series. God is a God who works. He made us in his image to reflect who he is, and we do that in our work. We are not to worship our work, but we are to worship him in and through our work. So even though we live in this fallen world and our work is fallen and we are fallen and there's frustration and toil and sweat and angst in our work, God still created us to work, to love him and to worship him in our work. That was sermon number one. Sermon number two, we looked at this idea of the doctrine of vocation and how that all of our work are actually assignments handed down to us by God according to our gifts, skills, and passions 
that we might not only serve and worship him, but that we might serve one another and love one another through our work. And we said that even those are the masks of God by which he accomplishes his purposes in the world. Then last week we looked at another motivation for work, how that we are as his people, a city within a city, that even though we are not to be of the culture, we are to be in the culture and engage the culture. And one of the primary ways we do that is through our work. We, we cultivate the, the good world that God has made. We work with excellence and we display something of his goodness and glory as we seek the good of our city, the welfare of our city, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So, so that's where we've been in our series. And so we would have to agree that it would be better to transport rocks from one side of the backyard to another than to sit on the couch like a lazy bum eating potato chips and hitting lines of cocaine in the Hollywood culture or in any culture for that matter. Why? Because God made us to work and he made us to glorify him in our work. So what we're going to do today is this. We are going to take a look at the only person who's ever lived who has perfectly glorified God in his work. And that man is the God-man, and his name is Jesus Christ. So John 17, verses 1 through 5, we're talking about gospel-driven work. Let me read these verses for us, and we will jump right in. It says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we are going to camp out in these first five verses of John 17. But if we were to read the the whole chapter, as John alluded to earlier in our corporate time of prayer, uh, we would see that in verses 6 through 19, he moves on from praying for himself as he's preparing to go to the cross to praying for his disciples, his immediate disciples who he worked with, lived with, ministered with, prepared for future ministry. And then he prays for not only those disciples in 6 through 19, but he prays for all of his disciples, which we read and prayed for this morning ourselves in verses 20 to 26. This is the end of what scholars call in John the farewell discourse. It's called the farewell discourse, chapters 13 through 17, because these are the final words and actions of Christ before he is about to go to the cross to be brutally murdered and then three days later to rise again. So as those have said, last words are lasting words, and we should understand that there is great magnitude and weight to Not only what Jesus is saying all throughout here, his actions, but also this prayer that we find here in John 17. So I think that we can gather here based on how Jesus is praying and what we see in this prayer and kind of zooming out from the Gospels, we can can see something that should drive our work. Okay, so 
our encouragement this morning is to allow the gospel to transform our work through the work of Jesus, all right? A fourth and final motivator here in this four-week series on work reimagine. And, and what I want to do is just give us two steps, all right? Very simple. Two steps to allowing the gospel to transform, to motivate, to drive our work, whatever the work is that we find to do. So step one involves looking at Jesus, who is the embodiment of perfect work, okay? Consider Jesus, who performed his work perfectly. Now, we just saw here that Jesus is in the posture of prayer. And his posture of prayer is not like ours always is. You know, there's different ways to pray. And if you've been in the faith very long or been in the church very long, you've learned this. Sometimes we kneel and pray. Sometimes we bow our head and close our eyes and pray. Sometimes we get on our face and pray. And you know what? We can also pray like Jesus and we can look up to heaven and we can speak to God. All right? And Jesus does this again and again and again. We've seen it as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus gets away to pray and to pour out his heart to God the Father. He consistently did this. And if you're like me, sometimes you are curious as to why your life lacks clarity and power and direction sometimes. And listen, sometimes the reason is because we don't find ourselves on our knees and before the face of God, like he's made it available to us. So we often lack power because we often lack prayer. But this was not the case for Jesus. He begins by saying, Father, the hour has come. And the word hour here is a loaded word throughout the Gospel of John. It is used by John and by Jesus for dramatic effect. It's constantly pushing us forward to a particular time, a particular moment. So as early as chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding of Cana, he turns water into wine at the request of his mother. He, turn, he, he says, woman, when she comes to, with the request, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And then his brothers want him to go into the feast in Jerusalem. And he, and he says to his brothers, my hour has not yet come. And then he's try, they try to kill him a couple of different times. And it says that in John 7 and 8. And it says that, that he, he wasn't killed because his hour had not yet come. But then in John 12, the picture shifts. And Jesus then says, the hour has come which launches us into the farewell discourse, which launches us into the final days of the life of Christ. So what is his hour? The hour Jesus is referring to are the events that would fulfill his divine mission in his death, resurrection, and ascension. This is the hour that he is referring to. And it's so important for us to realize, I mean, this is, this is our understanding of trial and suffering and, and, and kind of the problem of evil in the world. Yes, there is evil. There has never been a more unjust moment than when Jesus Christ, the perfectly innocent sufferer, was slain for us. And yet God is fulfilling his greatest purposes in this moment. And God's timing in this moment was impeccable. For when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might be received as sons by adoption. The fullness of time had come to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament, to, to, to redeem that the, the Christ might be the Lamb of God in this moment to save people from their sins in, in this moment, this hour. For at the right time, when we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. At the proper time. So listen, in, in, our, in our life, in our work, a lot of times when we're just going through it and we can know that God is still at work behind the scenes working providentially to accomplish his purposes in our lives. We see this when we see that, that the hour had come for Jesus. And then he makes this petition. So, so Father, glorify your son that the son might glorify you. Glorify your son that the son might glorify you. So, so Jesus is requesting that God would honor him in the final moments of his life, in his cruel substitutionary death, in his glorious resurrection, and his ultimate ascension to the Father's right hand to be received back into full glory. So there's glory in the cross, glory in the empty tomb, glory in his ascension. Father, glorify your son. But why is Jesus praying this? Because ultimately Jesus is not concerned with his own glory, but he's concerned with the Father's glory. Glorify me that I might glorify you. That's a great way to pray. Not that we receive glory in the sense that Jesus receives glory, but how about changing to use me that I might glorify you. Empower me that I might live my life for you. Fill me up that I might live for your praise and honor and glory. Andreas Kostenberger says that the glorification of the Son the is shorthand for the cluster of events that comprise Jesus' crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. So, 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 so let's not miss this. There is an implicit claim, okay? Because this is a big question in Christianity. Christianity rises and falls on this question. Is Jesus God? And the Old Testament is constantly telling us, God is God, there is one God, and God will not share his glory with anyone else. It's really adamant about that. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else. So for Jesus to pray, glorify your son, what does that mean? I'm reading that and I'm saying the claim is he's God. And in verse five, you can kind of cheat and skip down to it. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there was the pre-existent glory of Christ. This is the beauty of the incarnation, the humility of Christ, that he was perfectly glorious, that there was nothing lacking in Christ. He had no need. He's self-sufficient, self-existent. Self-glorified even. Jesus, God is glorious in himself. He does not need help from the angels. He doesn't need help from creation. He doesn't need help from us. God is glorious. And Jesus is perfectly glorious because Jesus is perfectly God. So we are to worship him. But then amazingly, that is Jesus, the son of God, and Jesus is also the son of man. And we see this in his divine assignment in verses Two and three. Father, glorify the Son, 
that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus, being the Son of God, also the Son of Man, was given authority, delegated authority from the Father to have authority over all people, all things. But this is a delegated authority. And what we see in the the Gospels is that Jesus the Son was perfectly submissive to the Father's plan and the Father's will. So, So in John earlier, he would say, I do nothing of my own accord, but only what I hear the Father saying and telling me to do. I'm, I'm trying to walk in step with God every step of the way, and this is exactly what Jesus does throughout his life. And then even in this same night, on the same night in Luke 22, we know the famous prayer in Gethsemane, when Jesus is staring death in the face, what does he pray? He prays what? Not my will, but your will be done. And I think this hopefully teaches us something about our work, right? So, so if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the glorious, preexistent, now continually glorious Son of God can submit to the will of his Father, then that means we can submit to one another. We can submit in the, the, the proper relationships to others in our lives. So let's talk about work. Maybe not what you wanted me to bring up today, but I suppose we all have supervisors at some level. And, or maybe you are a supervisor. Maybe you need to look at the heart of the Father in this. But, but let's talk about those who are under supervision and, and do have opportunities to submit to those over us. Let me ask you just a couple of questions. Number one, do you welcome instruction? Do, do you welcome instruction? Do you welcome constructive feedback, do you welcome accountability? So it's not just, hey, do this assignment, students, you know, and here's what you need to do, and, you know, and then you have to turn it in and get graded. For, but, but what about, you know, you assign this task, this project, or working with others, and ultimately you have a supervisor that, that you are accountable to, and it's probably going to give you some measure of feedback and, and, and constructive, hopefully it's helpful, right, and constructive, but, but how do you take that? Like, like when your delegated responsibility, is it, is it I'm going to do the work like I've been asked to do or like I think it should be done and then I'll just apologize for it later Oh, I really didn't understand kind of scenario going on, right? So we have opportunity to, to submit to the leadership of others oftentimes in our work. And when you struggle with that, I would just say be gospel-driven and say, you know what, Jesus could do it and he can empower me to do the very same thing. So Jesus has authority, delegated authority to give life to all whom the Father, once again, the Father's at work, planning this out, has given to him. And so how does he do that? He gives them eternal life, and and what is that all about? Well, we don't want to miss verse 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, this could be, the most important question that, I would say it is the most important question, the most every person, if not every person, because God has set eternity into our, into our hearts, is asking, right? Is there something more? Is there life beyond life? Is there life beyond death? 
Where is this whole thing heading? Is there eternal life? If so, what is it like and how can I have it? And the answer is found right here in John 17, 3. What does Jesus say? He says, this is eternal life. And what is eternal life? Is it too simple for you? To know God and Jesus Christ who he has sent. This is life. This is eternal life. Jesus came to give us life and him was life and the life was the light of men. The prologue to John chapter one. So if you want to have life, the life that God intended for you to have, you need to know God. You need to know Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, who he gives life through. And it's not enough, listen, it's it's not enough to check off a little intellectual box that says, I ascribe to the notion of God in this abstract way. This is not what Jesus is saying here. It's not having a little bit of encyclopedic knowledge about God as if that would be enough to experience this kind of life that Jesus is speaking of in John 17, 3. So, so do you know life? Do you know eternal life? Eternal life that begins not when we die, but begins now because we already have this relationship with God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. This knowledge is not intellectual. It is both intellectual and holistic, spiritual. It is relational. It is is a picture of trust and fellowship and love and unity with the very God who made us. That's eternal life. So we can say, oh, God is loving. We can say that, and we can think we know that, but, but until we know the Christ of the cross, the Christ of the resurrection who changes us from the inside out, and, and we, know the ma- we begin to know the magnitude of that love, we'll spend all eternity doing that, by the way, then we really don't know the love of God. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can know that God is just, but until we experience his justice... Namely, that that, that that should have been me on the cross and it was Jesus? Then we don't know as much about justice as we probably think we do. And here's the beautiful thing I want to share with you. God wants all of us, every person on the planet, to know eternal life. And to have eternal life, we cannot begin to comprehend the great links that that God went to so that we might have this eternal life. I love Ezekiel 18.32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to have life. But here's the problem. It's a glory problem. The the language that we see here in the text, our our problem is is a glory problem. You see, God made us for his glory. This is what we covered the first week of sermon, you know, work reimagine series, right? God made us for his glory. He made us to to see and to savor and to live for and to reflect his glory. That's that's worship. But as Romans 3.23 says, we have not measured up to that glory for all have sinned 
blown it, rebelled against God, and we fall short of his glory. Like, not even like I'm talking, like you can't even see how short it is because God is that perfect and we are that sinful. So we are way short. It's not like we just almost measured up and we can work really hard and we'll maybe get there. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like way, you can't even see it. We've all fallen short of the glory of God that has separated us from him with an infinite chasm that can only be gapped by infinite love. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died that we might be brought to God, be reconciled back to God and know something of his glory. And this is the beautiful part, when he remakes us, he transforms us from one degree of glory to another. That's what we call sanctification. We've talked about that, I think, a couple weeks ago, right? So, so sanctification is becoming more and more and more like Christ until we are once finally and forever glorified, made like Christ free from sin. This is eternal life. I think we should just end the sermon right now. So do you know, do you know eternal life? Like, do you really know it? I mean, if, if you were to stand before God today, is it just in you? Has he remade you? Has he redeemed you? So that you have beyond the shadow of a doubt. Man, when I stand before God, beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt, not because I'm special, but because Jesus is special, because he died as a substitute in my place, my sin for his righteousness. Now in me, when God looks at me, he ain't seeing jacked up Tanner anymore. He's seeing perfectly, perfect Jesus. And this is good news. So we should consider the, the perfect work of Jesus as we consider our work. That's step one. Step two is, is, is this. Do your work motivated by the finished work of Christ. Okay, so it's not enough just to look at the work of Christ, okay, because a lot of people want to make Jesus kind of just, just, okay, just reduce Jesus to just a teacher. He had some nice things to say. Or just an example, you know, like he did this, so I'll do that, and he was a really nice guy, so I'll be a nice guy kind of thing, Right? But the biblical Jesus, the, the real one, uh, leaves us no room for that. I mean, he is a teacher. He is an example, but he's so much more. He's a savior. You know what I'm saying? And this savior transforms everything about us. So therefore, we can do our work by being motivated by the finished work of Christ. So let me read verses four and five for us again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, I love this, all right? This is so cool. I, I, I tend to be a kind of guy that loves to look forward, you know? So I'm thinking about not, la I mean, you got to think about last month and last year, but, you know, this time of year I really love because it's just the start of a new year. And if you were here about a month and a half ago, you heard 2000. 13 vision sermon and where we want to go as a church. Don't forget about that, by the way, all right? We need to keep bringing that up. And so I love to look forward, but it is also really, really valuable to pause and look back. Where have we been? What can we learn from? What's going on here? And here's the beautiful thing. In John 17, Jesus is looking back. 
And, and when he looks back, he doesn't look back like we look back. Because when we look back, we see all kinds of bumps and, you know, just stuff that happened that, that wasn't the way that we wanted it to be or the way that we thought it would be. And, 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 lot, and most of the time it's because of us to, to one degree or another. But, but when Jesus looks back, he sees no bumps. Why is that? Because, well, he perfectly performed his work. And, and he says in verse 4 that he glorified God on earth from the birth to the grave and beyond, having accomplished the work that he gave him to do. So he's looking back on the entirety of his work, and he's, and he's looking back and he's saying, yes, I obey my parents, like every single time. And, and when I launched my public ministry, and, and lame men were walking, and blind men were seeing, and deaf men and women were hearing and, 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 and the, the poor were becoming rich and the rich were p- becoming poor. It was like all of that was just perfect. And he did everything that God asked him to do. And we see that fleshed out as we go through the rest of the chapter. But what I love about Jesus is that, that Jesus did his work with perfection and he was utterly resolved to complete the work, the mission that God had given him. So I want you to understand that that there was a resolution in the heart of Jesus Christ that was unwavering and indefatigable. That's a big word. I shouldn't even try to say it, right? So so that means like it, it could not be exhausted, all right? Sometimes you, I'm not trying to look smart, but you know, sometimes you think you're smart and you can't even say the word. All right, so, 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 so what I'm talking about is that the will of Christ to accomplish the mission that God had given him was complete. There was nothing that could deter him from finishing the mission that God had given him. So even in the garden, okay, come back to the gospel, when he's in the garden praying, not my will, but your will be done, he is not simply just looking at death in the face. He is looking at the wrath of God in the face. He didn't die a death like just any person would die. He died a death that would absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. There's never been a death like Christ. There will never be a death like Christ because Christ died in our place. He took the punishment, the, the wrath, the judgment. The, wrath is the just anger that God has against sin because God is perfect and he's holy and that adds up if you see the whole picture. And so Jesus dies in our place. He absorbs wrath to save us from hell. And he was completely resolved to do it. We've seen in the Gospel of Luke as early as chapter nine, what does it say? Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross, to die for the sin of the world. And so listen, when it's difficult to be motivated in our work, when, when man, it's, maybe, maybe you're struggling, maybe, maybe you don't have a job right now or, or, or you don't have a job that you like right now and you just kind of don't know where to go, you come to God and you say, God, give me direction and give me strength, give me motivation because whatever it is that God sets before us, whether that's a great job, a decent job, a job that we would like to replace or even looking for a job, whatever your assignment is, you can find strength and motivation by looking to the resolution of Christ and saying, man, I want to fulfill my work like he fulfilled his work. 
And so this really addresses all kinds of practical issues in our work. And let me just talk about a couple of them. Uh, number one, there is the danger of saying, oh, I'll get that done soon. We, we can call this procrastination, right? I mean, I'll, I'll get that done after I, you know, hang out with some friends and, you know, do this, you know, thing over here that's not real super pertinent or important, but it's easier and more self-pleasing. So I kind of do this, but I'll get that done later, so, so on the one hand, we procrastinate. Uh, on the other hand, we just have a lot of good intentions. Man, it would be great to do that. I do this all the time. Man, I would love to do this. I would love to see this happen. How about, you know, we'll work on this. But it never gets done. And then there is just the whole notion of laziness. And this is maybe the one that we need to hear the most because I, I always thought, well, man, Tanner, dude, you work really hard. <laughs> You're pushing like a, a serious job, student, serving at your church, married, fill in the blank. You know, like I'm, I'm working really hard. I really don't have a lot of time to do anything else but what I'm doing. And so I'm working hard, right? But there are times in my life where I'm looking back and saying, but, but you find ways to be lazy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? As, as you're working, you're just so easily distracted. You know, you, you, you're working hard but not smart. And, and so there, there are a lot of ways where, man, we just see laziness creep up into our lives. We, we, we just lay in bed and we hit the snooze bar, right? I mean, Proverbs, I love Proverbs 26, 14. As the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Wow. So let's not be like the sluggard. I mean, let's, let's put in some work and some hard work to reflect Christ. There are other verses in Proverbs. There's a lion in the streets. I can't go outside. I can't do my job because there's a lion in the street that's going to eat me alive. And the reality is there in the Proverbs, there's no lion in the streets. It's just an excuse not to get up and work. Working hard is a way that we reflect Jesus in our work, and, I, and we need to put our heart into our work. We talked about Brother Lawrence a couple of weeks ago. Listen to what he said. He said, we ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. So we, so we put our heart in our work. We, we, we love the assignment that God has handed to us, and we do it to the very best of our ability, fighting against laziness. So we, we get the job done, and hopefully we get the job done right. So here we're talking about integrity, character, who are we when no one is looking, especially when the boss is not looking, but when God is seeing everything, you know, how are we getting the work done? Are we, are we kind of, you know, really working hard? At all times, are we kind of like, you know, doing our thing, Facebook over here at work, you know, emailing over here at work, pull out the cell phone, text somebody, put it back, oh, boss button here, you know, boss is coming in. Anybody seen the boss button? Yeah, they, they have those things too. So, so we, we, we work with integrity. We work in order to, 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 to serve those around us and to, to give that others might receive. And then there's a whole host, and we're not even going to jump in uh, really at all to this, but I know each of you in each vocation, each, each job has its own particular set of ethical dilemmas, right? And most of the time it's, it's fleshed out at the end of result. It's, it's, it's fleshed out in either having the opportunity to tell the truth or to cover up something by telling a lie, right? Oh, I didn't realize I was supposed to do that. Oh, man, they were really supposed to, I thought they were going to do, you know what I'm saying? 
It's a lie. Own it. Own our mistakes. Go back and do the job better the next time, right? Well, nobody's perfect here. So get the job done. Get the job done right. And in all this, this is so good. We have the opportunity to be a witness in our work. So last week we said, hey, we're in the culture. We don't have to bust out Bible verses every time we're on a task and with our coworkers and that type of thing. But we did say that, that in all of our work, it does give opportunity to then display the gospel and hopefully give a witness to the gospel. So here is something to consider by our friend Gene Veith. He says this in his book, God at Work. It is in vocation that evangelism can most effectively happen. How can non-Christians be reached with the gospel? Well, by definition, they are unlikely to come to church. This is true. But in the workplace, non-Christians and Christians work together and get to know each other. And occasions for witnessing and inviting a colleague to church come up in natural ways, maybe over the water cooler, maybe on a coffee break, maybe it's discussing a disaster like the World Trade Center attack or a failing marriage, or even in times of joy such as the birth of a child. Christians penetrating their world in vocations have more access to non-believers than a pastor does. So here's the point. We say it all the time. We all have spheres of, of, of relationship, webs of relationships and spheres of influence. And your spheres of influence are not my spheres of influence and vice versa. And we could say that like a hundred and something times over. And I guess multiply that out and it's a lot more than that, right? So, so we all have opportunities, unique God-given opportunities to display and hopefully even get to the point of declaring the gospel in our workplaces, So let's own that privilege and responsibility that comes to all those who follow Christ and fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, let's, let's kind of move to a finish with this. I love this. There are, there are two great motivators for work. Let, let me back up. Two, two great, two great uh, results of engaging in work like this and kind of Jesus-centered, gospel-driven work, all right? I think there are two results that you'll be very, very interested in, okay? Energy and joy. Anybody tired? Anybody just kind of barely made it this morning? Didn't want to get out of bed? I don't really have that problem on Sundays. I just have to, you know, so. I like my job, you know, but, but just tired going through it. You need some energy. And even related to that, you're so tired and spent and drained and stressed out that what happened to the joy, you know, in life? Well, listen, listen to the Gospels again. In John 4, Jesus says this. Okay, so John, John 4, Jesus at the woman at the well, okay, and he's been, he's been talking to her like all day long. Disciples went to get food, drink, and they're coming back, and they're basically saying, Jesus, you should be hungry. You need to eat something. They care about him, right? It's good for the disciples. But I love what Jesus says. He says, I'll just read, this is 31 through 35. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What on earth is this? All right, Jesus is so smooth, always surprising the disciples. And so the disciples are just asking one another. They're, they're just, I mean, they don't know better. Man, is someone giving them something to eat? 
yeah, I have food you don't know about. Like, so who is someone come riding by, you know, on a camel and dish some food out to Jesus? No, that didn't happen because Jesus has been ministering all day long. He says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus says, this is what drives me. This is what energizes me. It's doing the work that God has given me to do. And you don't have to be a pastor for this because we just already obliterated that notion with the doctrine of vocation and the secular divide, right? It is an assignment from God, whether you're an artist, a banker, a pastor, a teacher, an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, a fill-in-the-blanker, you know what I'm saying? This is assignments given by God, and so we have opportunity, countless opportunities to do the will of God as we work. And as we do it, it should give us great energy for God. So I love J.I. Packer and the book that we have back there on our table, Knowing God. He says, those who know God have great energy for God. And we can add to that because of John 4, that those who do the will of God also have even more energy for God. And you really can't separate the two, by the way. So, so number one, energy. But then what about number two, joy? One should flow from the other. And so just, just consider Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And it was for what? The joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising his shame, and he is seated now at the right hand of God. So it was for joy that Christ engaged in all of his work, even the work of laying down his life for us. So if Jesus, being motivated by the will of the Father and by this great joy that is set before him, we who have Christ and are united with Christ and do what we do and are who we are because we're in Christ, this joy is also available to us in whatever it is that we do. Joy is not icing on the cake of Christianity. It's the cake. So we can have great energy and great joy when we apply the gospel to our work. So I just want to finish up with, with two thoughts related to this because you can't have a sermon on gospel-driven work if you don't say these two things. So number one, Jesus put in work so you could work it out, right? Jesus put in work so that you could work it out. And, and so we go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. We can't work for our salvation, I hope that's clear, so that no one may boast. And then what does he say in verse 10? For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jesus finished his work on the cross. On the cross, he's hanging there, and his final words are what? Three, it is finished. He finished the work on our behalf so that we would not have to work our way to God, but that we might be saved by his grace. But we are not saved by grace just to chill out and not do anything, but we are saved by his grace so that we might engage in good works. 
So it's the finished work of Christ, this work that has now been given to us and that we've received by which now we can go out and work for God. And then, and then finally, you can't work as God desires until you receive this work. You just can't do it. And so I know no better way to end this fun, fun series than to close with 2 Thessalonians 11, 1 and 11 and 12. It's a prayer, but it is a theologically loaded prayer from Paul who says this, to, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and don't miss this, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. By his power. Jesus is divine. We are the branches. Apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. So these good works that God prepared for us to do, he prepared them for us that we might walk in them and we can't walk in them unless we are walking according to his grace and power that is at work in us. So when you go back to work tomorrow or this afternoon or whenever it is, you have all kinds of motivations for work. The glory of God, the good of others, the flourishing of our city and a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ who is both teaching us how to work and empowering the very work that we do. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we are humbled by your word. We love it. We're so amazed that you would give it to us that we might know your will. That when Jesus says his food is to do the will of the Father, your will, that we wouldn't be left in the dark wondering, well, then how can we even kind of say the same thing that Jesus says and experience this energy and experience this joy in life because you have revealed yourself to us and you've done so, so intricately and so perfectly. And so, God, everything that we see in Christ, this, this perfect integrity, this, this perfect resolve, this perfect work, this never lazy, this, this never uh, you know, uh, slandering others, God, all these things we see in, in Jesus, God, we pray that you would... Help us to reflect it. Because you tell us we're clothed with Christ. We're in Christ. We have the power of Christ that raised him from the dead at work in us. And so God, we just pray for every resolve of good, every work of faith, that you would strengthen us so that we might not be patted on the back and said how great we are, but so that you would receive glory from every single life that is in this room today. So God, would you take our lives and would you make them count for your glory? God, would you remind us that, that our life is very, very short. It's but a breath. It's but a vapor. It's but a hand breath. And, and, and we need to give ourselves to you in, in, in completely radical ways so that at the end, God, you would say, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful worker. 
Enter into the joy of your master. Wow, thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.